0: So let's start with our motivation for tonight. A few days ago, a little bird ran into the window while we were in morning meditation and it fell on its back and turned itself over. And then it was just kind of breathing hard and its tail moving and then it didn't move for about 50 minutes. And we thought it had died. And then, right as we were dedicating in the morning, um, it kind of hopped off into the bush. But I'm pretty sure, I'm not sure, it was injured. It's a long time for a bird to lie there an hour. And it really had me thinking how quickly things change just like in an instant and so for it's the same for all of us actually but it's not something that comes to mind all the time of course but it's good to bring these kind of things to mind and use them to just help us stay focused on what we're trying to do with our lives What is the meaning of our life? And in our practice here, we focus a lot on the mind training and the Lam Rim. And so we have this opportunity to get a real in-depth picture of the path to awakening. And in that, we work a lot on the self-centered thought which helps us to turn back the afflictions and then be able to develop the mind of bodhicitta. A mind that wishes to help other beings, cares for them. But we also need a mind of wisdom to go with our compassion. Um, so, tonight's talk will be one related to wisdom, and I'll just read this verse with a aspiration for all of us sitting here and listening with effort and with caution, pure morality, and calm. The wise become as islands and turn back the great rivers. So may we do that, turn back all of the these are all internal things that are in our way and Develop the realizations and become fully awakened Buddhas very quickly. Venable Children had a successful surgery and is recovering from her cataract surgery yesterday. We're going to continue with a review. And last time Venerable Simke did a review, we're taking off right from where she left off in the teachings. And that this point Venerable Children reviewed the basis of designation and the designated object and she asked if if we understood it and no one said a thing we're all affirming we understand this so tonight we might get a little stretched in this I'm just warning you (laughs) and then she talked about uh, she reviewed again a little bit the example of the chariot as an example of um, learning about selflessness of phenomena in order to learn the process and then she, uh, we were talking at that point about how it was easier to learn, to realize this, the selflessness of a person first. And then she went into the four-point analysis, which is a method to understand emptiness. So that's our basic topic tonight. And um, just to say what those four points are, the first thing is we have to ascertain the object of negation. So we have to clearly identify the object And that's uh, not easy. <laughs> and then the second one is we have to ascertain the pervasions, how it's often said, or could be said the entailment of the argument. So there you have to con- have reach, a conc- know, um, reach a conclusion that of where this object navigation is. You have to figure out where the whereabouts could be, reach a conclusion on that. So, ascertaining the pervasion is that. And then the third point is to ascertain freedom from being one. And so, there we're trying to clearly determine if the object navigation is identical or one with the phenomena that you're investigating. And then the fourth is ascertaining freedom from being many. So, there you want to clearly establish whether the object navigation is different from the phenomena that you're investigating. So here, um, this is what we're going to talk about tonight, but we're going to focus mostly on the first point. So with this four-point analysis, if the object of a negation was to exist, it would have to be either identical with, one with, or totally different from the phenomena that you're investigating. And in this, the in this analysis, the most imp- of these four, the most important is the first. And so you can't really, none of the rest follows unless you have the unless you have clearly identified the object of negation, you, the rest of it would be a kind of a moot point. So you have to both in- identify and understand what this is clearly. So emptiness is a negation of something. So what is a negation first? So like some examples, like if you say the refrigerator is empty, what you're implying there is there's nothing, there's no food in it, it has no contents, right? So it's it's negating the existence of something in the refrigerator. Or if you had an empty teapot, you would say that you're negating any contents in the pot. So a negation is uh, something... That you're understand it's actually a negative phenomena, and you're understanding it through eliminating another factor. Like for example, we use um, uncompounded space a lot, and there it's the lack of obstruction. Or in the topic tonight, we're talking about non-self or selflessness. There is the absence of the self. So this is a negative phenomena. It is a phenomena, and it exists. So a negation. You know, these are these things like a refrigerator that's empty and an empty teapot are just examples. They're trying to help us just to understand what a negation is and understand that when we realize emptiness, we're realizing the negation of something. So then what is it that we're negating or refuting? And this is what we have to uh first determine in point one, in the first point of the four. So it's like this, if you were going to shoot a pistol at a target, you have to be able to see the target. In the same way when we realize emptiness, which is a negation, we first have to identify the object of negation. If you don't understand what you're trying to negate, then you'll be unable to realize emptiness. This is like, maybe, I can't remember if it was Venom Nima who did this. Somebody went out to weed the garden. Uh, the veggie garden ones. <laughs> they were supposed to remove the weeds from the garden. <laughs> I'm not sure who it was. But first you have to know what are the weeds that you're trying to remove. Oh, it was you. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Bad memory. So you have to identify what are the weeds. <laughs> you just can't start removing plants from the gardener. It's kind of a mess. <laughs> I did this myself when I was living at home when I was a kid. So this is the point here is it's crucial to identify what is the object of navigation. Or like the pistol shooter, you know, and the gardener. These things are just like examples. They're trying to simplify this first point, right? They don't parallel what it means to realize emptiness because with a person who's shooting a pistol, there's a target. And with a person going out to weed weeds, there's weeds. And those things exist. But when you're doing this analysis in the first point, the object navigation actually doesn't exist. So it's not the same in that way. It doesn't exist at all, it's a projection of our ignorance. But still you get the idea of, you know, it's something you're negating. If we don't understand the first point in this process, we can go really into left field, we can go really astray. We could negate too little, in that way, you know, which is considered one of the two extremes. The extreme of absolutism, if you negate too little. So here, you are you haven't negated something that you should have negated. So you're actually reifying something that doesn't exist. Right? Or you could negate too much when you do this analysis. And so that's the other extreme of nihilism. So here, you're negating something that shouldn't be negated. You're denying something that actually does exist. And of the two, that one is the worst direction to fall to. It has devastating consequences. It's a huge error. Because you're actually negating that anything exists. Nothing exists. And so a lot of things fall apart, including like ethical conduct and karma. and You just can really go off track with that. So for us right now, unless anyone has really got a lot of realizations on board... Whatever appears to us, anything internal or external that appears to us is mixed together with the object of negation. It's like you can't can't actually separate them. And this is due to the ignorance that we have that pollutes our perception. So everything that we perceive appears to us in this manner due to the ignorance, obscured by ignorance. So then that means that the actual object is like mingled with a fiction. We project something from our mind due to our ignorance and we've mingled these two together. So for example, whenever you see like a form with your visual consciousness, our perception of it is, is distorted by ignorance. And so that actually, that means that the form itself and our projection due to ignorance are mingled together and they appear together. So this is how it's been for us. And it's true for all of our sensory consciousnesses. They're all pervaded by ignorance in the same way. So then, on the basis of these mistaken perceptions, these mistaken sensory perceptions, we then cling to things mentally. We cling to these distorted appearances as real. And we hold this false image to be a real appearance of the object but it's actually just a false mental image. So we cling to the image and we think it truly exists or inherently exists. So we need to look at this in our own experience to try to determine what this is like. We can't just, you know, listen to words. We have to actually do this. So one way that they help us with trying to see how the object mitigation is mixed with the actual object is, is the example of, like say, standing in front of a mirror. And we see a reflection that looks like us. And if we stop and think about it, we know it's only a reflection. But at first glance, it's actually, it seems like it, the form is in the mirror and it appears just from its own side. Sometimes you might have that experience. And it seems like it doesn't depend on our body. Just there, there's the person in the mirror. Jeffrey gave a really good story about that once when he was in a restaurant. <laughs> he was, um, this is Jeffrey Hopkins, he was, there was an old man over there. Some <laughs> <an> old man. <laughs> Turned out it was him, a reflection in a mirror. He didn't even recognize himself. It was that old guy over there. <laughs> it was funny. So anyway, when we first see a reflection, there can be a moment where we don't think of it as just a reflection, like just briefly. But it seems like the image just exists independently from its own side under its own power. So similarly, it's like they give us another example to think about. It's like if the moon is reflected in a calm lake. At first sight, it's hard to differentiate this reflection of the moon. It seems like the moon is a part of the lake. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I have, especially once when the moon was really low. So anyway, these reflections appear to us to be real, like they exist from their own side. But if you just, when we pause and consider them, like right away we know, yeah, there's no moon in that lake and there's no person in that mirror. It's obvious that this it's a, just a combination of factors coming together, the object and the mirror, the lake. So, when you think about it, although it looks like there's a moon in the lake, actually, there's nothing intrinsic to the lake that is a moon, and that we don't have any trouble understanding. But so, but these examples help us to start to look in our experience and try to see the way that we're seeing things all the time. So, that So all the time, 100% of the time, when any object appears to us, it seems like it's existing solely from its own side. Venerable uses the word as though it exists unto itself, self-enclosed, under its own power, not depending on anything else, with some kind of inherent nature that makes it what it is. We don't perceive that things are related to many causes and conditions that things are dependent. We don't actually perceive that things are related to our consciousness. It just seems like things exist in and of themselves. So, we have to learn to observe carefully the way that we conceive this appearance, this perception. Objects that appear to exist in this way, then we assume this is how they exist in this independent manner. We have to try to tease this apart in our own experience. If you were just looking at me right now, I seem to exist just on my own. I don't have anything to do with your consciousness. You could leave the room, I'll still be here. (laughs) You know, no problem. But we have to kind of pull that apart. We've got to, like, we can't let things be so solid like that. So we have to think like things are like a mirror and that first glance, this is what we have to try to find in our experience, that things appear to exist from their own side. And that we don't seem to be involved at all. I actually find this to be most useful when I look at the anger in my mind and how I see things when I have anger. It's like that you're, you're really, um, you're so far off base that sometimes when you think about it again later, it's, it's I find that to be a good example actually that real jerk you can't find because you've just created the whole drama in your mind. But let's pick something a little easier, like we have chai every two weeks, right? Mm -hmm. So you make yourself a cup of chai, and it seems like the beverage is just existing there from its own side. And we fully believe in this. This is how this exists. So with this in mind, we drink it. But in fact, there is, at that time, there is chai in front of us, but this appearance to our mind is completely mixed with the object of negation. You're not drinking the object of negation. It's just a projection of your mind. There is liquid in there, in the cup, and that's what you're drinking. But it actually the appearance is mixed with the object of negation. But we can't distinguish this. We can't distinguish the actual way that things exist and how the object of negation appears. So we're just like enjoying the tie and the chai and on to the next thing. We don't, we don't make, we can't make this discernment. So maybe an easier example for me to understand is like if there was someone who had never seen snow and you gave them some yellow tinted sunglasses and you took them to see snow and they'd never seen it before, for them the snow would appear to be yellow and they actually might even think that it's yellow because they've never seen snow before. So they'll experience something that's cold and wet and yellow, they're, they may not be able to understand that although it appears yellow, and they're having all these sensations of the cold, and, their, and the wetness of it, they, they don't actually know that it's white, because of the sunglasses, and not, and not knowing. So this is kind of how we, we are, in the same way when we perceive things, we believe that they really exist as they appear to us. And we cling very strongly to this belief. In fact, without teachings, we would probably never doubt it, ever. This is why we need logic. It's like uh, what Guy Newland told us once about a, a person who's colorblind can figure out how to drive a car with traffic lights even though they can't see the color of the lights they do it through a logical way. They never perceive the colors properly of green light and red light, but they have a mind that has valid... Uh, it's, there's error in what it's seeing, but it can validly use that information and figure out when should I stop and when should I go at the light, even though they're mistaken. The mis- appearance is always mistaken because they're colorblind. So it's a, this is a similar example. We have to use our valid cognition of things that are mistaken appearances and figure this all out. So these things don't exist independently. That's just a misconception. I think we've covered that. The way Venerable Chodron talked about this when this came up in this teaching is she said, well, how do things appear to me? And we just accept the appearances as reality and everything that we've ever, we just accept this objective existence and we've been taught this actually in our education, at least in our country, because science is always, you know, most of the science we've had until the recent times has been very much like Newtonian physics, where it's like, there's an objective world out there, and this is real, and this is unreal, and you don't really, never question these things, and we were raised in this way. We see things this way, our worldview supported this, and there was no reason to doubt it. So we see things like this gong has the nature of a gong, and this glass has the nature of a glass, and we don't really think that they are dependent on anything else. We don't think they have much to do with our mind. There's just water here. I don't need to have a mind here for this water to be here. I can just drink it, and I'm good to go. (laughs) So we just take the appearances as they are, and we don't doubt them, we don't think about them, unless we have some teachings and well, many of us might have experiences in our life where things don't actually add up, but we need a really a wise system of belief to figure out how to make sense of these things. So then how do things actually exist? Where how do we how do we determine that? So the masters, the great masters encourage us to think about these examples of the mirror or the moon and the lake or The person wearing the sunglasses, or even maybe rainbows. Why? Because they want us to develop an understanding that the way we believe things to exist and the way they actually exist are there's a mismatch there. And we also need to learn that the way the actual way things exist is related to our consciousness. So when we say that things don't exist as they appear you could easily think that then this way of appearing is, if it's the only way something could exist, if they don't exist in that way, then they don't exist at all. You see what I'm saying? You follow that train of thought? So we say things don't, don't exist as they appear. So let's say that we... You know, by that idea, but then you, in your mind, you're thinking well, if they don't exist this way that they appear, then they don't there's no way they could exist, so your mind will go to nihilism because you think they don't exist at all because they're holding so strongly and uh, one master said that if your mind goes that direction, it would have been better for you never to have started to investigate emptiness because you're risking going to a nihilistic extreme, which is why. When they teach emptiness, they always have a lot of, it's always all, a lot of background first, teaching things about dependent arising and conventional reality, and grounding us first so that we don't just fall off to an extreme and negate everything. So we have to realize that this clock and this microphone and this table and this recorder, all these things exist, but they just don't exist as they appear. So then how do they exist? Yep, depending on causes and conditions, dependent on parts, depending on the mind that conceives and labels. Okay, so that last one is the one that's the harder one for us to really grok. This is why I said that thing about the basis of, the um, basis of designation and the designated object. We just nodded, yeah, we get it. <laughs> but mm, I don't think so. So that third point is saying that things actually are dependent on, related to, and connected with the consciousness that perceives them. They're closely involved with the mind that labels them. So the mind that's labeling this gong and this microphone and all these things, they exist dependently on the imputing consciousness. That just seems weird. (laughs) A little weird. What do I have to do with this gong? There's no way in which anything can exist without depending on an imputing consciousness. There, all phenomena exist dependently on the combination of the basis of designation, the base, and the mind that imputes it. You're imputing is a designated object. That just seems strange. So we have to I think I turned to Guy Newland when it came to this point because he's so good at this and I thought what he wrote here was really helpful because we're talking now about mere name, mere designation, mere imputation by thought. And that's just like hard to grok, right? So he says this, If we completely leave aside how a rainbow appears to someone looking into the sky, okay, so leave aside how a rainbow appears to you looking at it, right? Leave that aside. How? What is the rainbow from its own side? Would we dare say it's a pattern of light? Do light waves constitute a rainbow on their own, apart from the mind of the viewer situated at a certain point? And if we leave aside how light appears to and is understood by the mind, then what is light in and of itself? I think he touches on it quite nicely there. We have to take ourselves out and look at these things like how would that thing how could that thing exist? Where is that rainbow without a viewer? So this is of course a very difficult point to understand. And it's very profound and subtle. So we have to guess, you know, this is why they're telling us to look at these uh um the examples that they give so we can start finding this find this moment where the reflection, you think it's actually really real. Before you think, you know, before Jeffrey realized that was himself, there was just this whole guy over there, you know, it's kind of like that. That's why he brings up these stories. I've noticed in transcribing his stuff that he usually doesn't say anything that doesn't, he doesn't tie back in to what he's teaching. He oftentimes will tell these stories and then he'll find a way to tie them in I make these points that just, you have to pay attention. So then, okay, things do exist, but now we're saying they exist by this combination of the basis of designation and the imputing consciousness. So there's this interdependent relationship between these two. So this is what emptiness means. It's not something far off. It's not something like sacred. It's not out in outer space someplace. It's just the ultimate way in which everything around us, including us, exists. So to understand this, to really understand this, we have to get a clear realization of emptiness through meditation. And the first step is to clearly identify the object of negation. We have to be able to gradually get, a very clear recognition of this and distinguish between the way the actual object exists and the object of negation, this thing that we've mingled together. And by meditation, we learn to separate these two. So then in our mind, the way that things actually exist will become clearer and clearer. So right now, we're unable to do that. And so we have to use these examples. I really think his one about the rainbow is quite good. And then the light itself is like, yeah, that'd be interesting. makes me think of like, well, how about the dogs that hear sounds that we don't hear? Things like that. There's just so many examples that we can use that try to deconstruct things that we think are so solid. So we use these analogies at the beginning because we can't realize clearly the way things really exist and the object of indigation, because they're just mingled together. So how do we go about ascertaining the way the object of indigation appears? So this requires serenity, actually. We have to have a very calm mind. We have to have developed a fully concentrated mind that can clearly see this distinction between a false appearance and the actual mode of the object, mode of existence of the object. And since we haven't got that calm mind, that makes this rather difficult. (laughs) We actually need to have a, a, a calm mind to be able to do this. It's like what you were saying the other day, like, when I'm just running around here, how can I think about this going? You know, it's like that, you know. It's a little bit like, if you were to ask somebody, like most of the time if you come into the office I'm working in, I get really focused. And if I don't quit focusing on what I'm doing and I'm all consumed with what I'm doing and you ask me a question, that's what, my, that's what your mind is like when you're trying, you know, I have to put that stuff down so I can listen to you. It's the same thing. If you're, like, if you're asking somebody who's a question who's preoccupied, they can't even hear you. We have to calm our minds first before we're going to be able to see these things. It's kind of similar in that way. So when then we've calmed the mind, then we have to start to analyze the way in which we apprehend the self. So we do this in the first point of the four-point analysis by activating the sense of I. And we do this by generating certain thoughts or certain sensations, either ones that are pleasant or unpleasant. And we activate the mind with these thoughts so that a strong sense of self arises. And then we have to observe how this self appears to us. Now this next part of this, because uh, I was, I really wanted to know more about this point so I turned to Geshe Rapton because he has a really nice, um, I just never found anyone who would describe this so, so much so, and I trust his wisdom. So here's some things he says about this. When we carry out this kind of analysis, there are certain errors that can happen. And so the first one he describes is like a kind of a darkness or a blankness in the mind appears. He says it doesn't really happen to everyone, but it can happen, and that this is a result of like sudden mental force when we start this analysis. So you just kind of go blank or darkness. Another thing he describes is a kind of tension or tautness in the body, and he doesn't. He says that's not the object of negation; it's from the same cause. Actually, you're forcing your mind too much, sudden concentration. This is one thing I've learned about the last, finally, that I was trying to do myself when I was trying to work on concentration. I realized now I was just always trying to, like, force my mind to concentrate. I didn't know anything about, enough about relaxing, and I realized finally that, that what I, the way I was going about it was causing a lot of excitement. And so I think there's, it's good to try to learn and listen to people who have some experience to figure these things out. Another way is that maybe only the physical body will seem to manifest or appear when you're doing this investigation. So like, you know, you've brought up a strong sense of self, by maybe someone has wounded your pride. (laughs) But when you do the investigation, you just have a sense of the the physical body appearing. And that's also not the object of negation. But... The conventional existing self is related closely to the body, so that so when you start this kind of analysis, that could happen, or maybe you experience nothing at all. And he says, "This is a result. This is probably what happens to a lot of us, is <laughs> we haven't begun. You know, you do this, you you bring up the thing, and like now what? <laughs> you know, I don't think I've had that experience a lot. Nothing. I just don't experience anything with the meditation. He says you've begun the analysis too late. Of course, we're assuming we have." this concentration on board but just imagine (laughs) okay so you've started the analysis too late so you need to start this analysis as soon as the sense of self arises because otherwise it quickly recedes into kind of like a vagueness which i think most of us have some we've talked about that so they, he says, it's good to know about these kind of mistakes that we make so that you can recognize them when you're doing these meditations. And if they occur, then you have to start the meditation again. Allow the thought to arise and straight away apply the analysis. But don't slug it with a hammer. You know, you need to have a very calm and peaceful mind, not one that's tense or excited. He says that excitement or tension will obscure or actually dissipate the appearance of the self. It's kind of like when we go down to watch the turtles in the pond. You have to be really quiet. Now you can't see them because the trees are so big. But before, they'd float on this log. And when you went down there, if you were noisy, they'd all jump into the pond. They would just disappear. Or like when these turkey babies that are out there. When you sometimes I come out in the morning for morning practice, and they're, you know, I have to walk really slowly, or all they're just like they're gone. So it's the same, it's a similar kind of thing. As we approach this analysis, we've got to be a little more gentle and have a, a calm, peaceful mind. So then he continued, like, I was wondering, well, what does our text, the Gom, Gom Chin Lam Rim text, say about the appearance of this object? You know, what, what is it like? How do they describe it? And in our text it just says, as for the way the object of appears, as independent and standing on its own, if an object existed the way it appears, it would exist truly. So that was it. Independent and standing on its own. Which is why I had to go to <laughs> some other place to look for this, because it wasn't enough for me. I need more elaboration from somebody who's done the meditation a lot to really try to learn these things. So then he goes on and talks about when we do this investigation, it it can then, as we you know, work through these mistaken things... It can then happen that the self or the I seems to exist as something separate from and unrelated to our five aggregates, our body and mind. Remember the five aggregates: form, or uh, form, feeling, discrimination. I think she's using the term miscellaneous factors, or volitional factors was one that she used, in consciousness. So the body and mind. It can seem like the self is is separate from that. That is not the subtle object of negation either. And we have different levels of ignorance in our mind, and so we have to investigate this further. And as we do this, we'll progressively uncover an increasingly subtle form of self-grasping ignorance. I think that's what we've actually done here as a community to a degree. My own word for this is not maybe subtle, but when we talk about our reactivity here, or emotional reactivity. I've started calling that reactive ignorance because it feels like that. I used to think, some years ago, I used to like, I want to identify this act of ignorance. Now I just call it reactive ignorance <laughs> it's right there. It happens every day. <laughs> anyway, that's pretty gross, but it is a kind of, it's based on ignorance, so it, it works. I think, I don't think there's a problem with that. How many, how do they compare? Maybe four possibilities maybe three anyway you can figure that out and let me know at some point we'll discover that although the self does appear to us it it will seem related to our body and mind related to the five aggregates but it also differs from them so we can see that the aggregates are our body and mind are impermanent and they're changing our body gets older it's just changing we know that and that but the self appears to be more stable. I think most of us have that, the sense of self. We've talked enough to know that we've seen that at some level. So but even this appearance of the self isn't a subtle object of negation. It's more subtle than the previous, but it's still quite gross. So then he describes further, if we go on continuing this analysis in a fine, more refined way, eventually the sense of self will appearing as though it's dependent on an imputing consciousness. But again, the self seems to manifest as the stronger of the two. So we have to look for that in our experience. I think the only thing that comes to mind is I can remember clearly, and this is not hard for me to bring up, but it just reminds me of this, I don't think it is this, but sometimes when we've had our three-month retreats, when they were a little more in the old days, before we had a lot of activities going on, like courses, I remember uh, thinking, like, uh, inside, (laughs) it's hard to explain this, but you're looking for, you have that sense of I, and you're trying to find it, and all of a sudden it says to me, ha-ha, can't find me, but here I am. (laughs) I always, always, this comes up to my mind all the time, ha-ha, here I am, can't find me, you can't get rid of me either, (laughs) ha-ha. That's as close as I've gotten. (laughs) It still is like that when I think about this. And it seems stronger, you know, it's related to my mind right then, you know. It's like, but and it's definitely stronger than the two. So he explains this a little bit more. He's saying here we don't have a balance. You don't it's not a balance between the combination of the self and the imputing con- consciousness. It seems like the self depends on the imputing consciousness, but it still has the ability to stand on its own. That's what it would look like. And also the point doesn't really, the, the sense of self, I, I call the sense of self, the appearance of the self, doesn't seem separate from your aggregates. It's, so then in a sense it's manifesting in two ways. On one hand it seems to be like one with the aggregates, not separate, but on the other hand it still seems to exist, exist unto itself from its own side. Ha ha. <laughs> Here I am, can't find me, can't get rid of me. So these are actually subtle points, and so, you know, these are things that, you know, good to learn about. So once we get to the place where we've identified the optic mitigation, then we have to affic- fix that appearance of the self into our in our mind. Actually, Geshe Dorji Damdo explained this in a really nice way. I often do this meditation the way he taught it. I'm not sure if it was recorded, but he would have you bring up that sense of self and then he'd have you bring up an image of it and then put it up here, up to the left, and then deconstruct the rest of your body. I did this meditation so many times and I've had a lot of anatomy, so doing these deconstructions of the body is very vivid for me. Okay, we pour the skin over here in one pile and then pile the bones over there and the organs and then you keep trying to find that sense of self in this pile of stuff. And just like, pretty soon there's nothing left here, and you still haven't found that. So anyway, he had a really nice way to teach them. So we have to fix that appearance. That's the part that I think he was teaching there. Fix that appearance in the mind, the appearance of the self, and then consider that as the basis for all the activities in which you think about yourself. Like when somebody calls your name, you know, there's sometimes I comes up. Me, hey, you're calling me or when somebody gives you a gift, or just even when you're just going about the day. So we have to try to approach this and make this more and more clear in our minds so that we can try to approach the subtle object of negation. So kind of as a side note, it might be hard for us to understand this right now, and it might be even impossible for us to recognize this. But as we continue with this, it will become clearer and clearer, and then what happens is we'll come into contact, there'll be certain circumstances where that sense of self, the appearance of the self, I mean, that's my term, sense of self, the appearance of the self, will manifest more strongly. In other circumstances, it seems more vague. And I think we have this, all, we are some awareness of this already. We, we're aware when, you know, how do we even do that, start the first point of this meditation? We bring up something where it appears. Or how do we know when we really need to keep our mouths shut? Hmm. strong sense of I, <laughs> you know, or how do we know when we can't even keep our mouths shut? <laughs> then we're really off. So sometimes what it's saying here is sometimes that appearance of the self is more clear and sometimes it's more vague, but hey, that's not really the case at all, because actually that self doesn't exist. So you're not getting a clearer and less clear appearance of the self because that self doesn't exist at all. What's actually going on there is that when certain circumstances happen, the, subtle, the, the ignorance in our mind, it grasps the self more strongly. So actually what's happening is we're monitoring our, our, our ignorance, in a sense. And so as a result, the self-grasping ignorance getting stronger, the appearance of the self becomes clearer. Because there is no self there, actually. So actually what we're doing is we're, in my words, is we're monitoring our, our ignorance, the self-grasping ignorance in a way, if we can just see it as such. I'm at the level of it's just gross it's reactive ignorance, but I think as we keep doing this and you know seeing it is an act of ignorance, then we can watch it like a barometer measures the pressure atmospheric pressure what's your barometer today? self gusting ignorance high, low don't <laughs> be like that so it, they have this cute story of like in some ways it's cute but not for us in some ways a cat has caught a mouse and if the mouse tries to run the cat grips it more tightly but when the mouse doesn't is very still then the cat will hold it loosely and they say our subtle ignorance is like that when circumstances arise it will grasp the self more firmly and then at other times it loosens its grip that's the way these analogies are helpful for us to think about this to realize emptiness, we have to recognize clearly the object negation. And when we think about the object negation, we might think that what we're seeing there is the actual appearance of the conventional self that does exist, the mere I. But that isn't the case. Those are de- different things. What we're what we're what we're seeing when we do identify that is the object negation. So again, it's like. The thing when you have a pistol, you have to look at the target and shoot. You can't just shut your eyes (laughs) and shoot. You have to identify what the object of negation is. So when we're realizing emptiness, we're realizing the negation of something. So we have to first understand what it is we're negating. And this is something we actually have to think about a lot for it to actually transform our minds. And we have to find this in our experience. And this is something that, you know, you... It's the whole thing of um, listening, understanding, and the meaning, and then meditating on. So, and then geshe Rapton continues to help us try to understand. He says, when we can recognize the appearance of the self, it's connected to and dependent on the imputing consciousness. That's the way he describes this. It's, but it still seems to have more strength. So that the appearance of the self, is, seems it depends on the imputing consciousness, but it still seems more strong and inherent power than the consciousness. He says we found the object that we have to start to apply our process of refutation and not to do it too strongly, like we talked about already, or the thing disappears, or don't do it vague and just say, okay, I found it, this doesn't exist, and you're on your way, and let's go have some ice cream. You can't just leave it at that. It's, he says it's more like, um, this Reminds me of the Mueller investigation, actually. <laughs> it's more like when you're trying to catch somebody who's guilty of a crime. You don't just right away arrest them and, and, and say you're guilty. No, first you catch them and then you interrogate them. You have to get all, the, all you have to know beyond the shadow of a doubt. So you have to know beyond a shadow of the doubt the object of negation, right? We don't try to refute it immediately, is what he's saying. Like when you bring this up in your mind, just like, okay, that doesn't exist, I'm off. Let's go have ice cream. It's not like that. We actually want to... um, He says if we do that, we could say to ourselves, oh, this is just ignorance, so it's not real. I'm, I'm out of here. But he says your refutation won't be firm or precise then. We have to apprehend this appearance as clearly as possible, then begin the analysis. We have to just not run through... If we ever get to that point, stay there and you know stay with it and get the appearance quite clear. Put that up there. I, I did that meditation a lot, and that appearance does not stay clear at all. In the way Geshe Dersidamdu explained this, not in my practice, but that's what we're shooting for. Then we can go to the second point of, the, of these uh, four. So in the second point, we're trying to figure out if the self truly or inherently existed, it has to exist in one of two ways. It's either going to be identical with, inherently one, with the five aggregates, with your body and mind, or it's going to be different from, inherently different from the body and mind, the five aggregates. So this is what they, um, we sometimes call the pervasion or the entailment. So in one way, you can think of it like this. It's like we have a nice, we're going to build another retreat cabin. I mean, just as a fantasy, but... It's good for the example. And our retreat cabin has two rooms. And I'm looking for my eyeglasses. And if they're in the cabin at all, they've got to be in one of those two rooms, right? If they're not in either room, then they're not in the cabin. So there's just two rooms in my little cabin. In the same way, if this self exists, if it truly exists, then it's got to be either identical with the five aggregates, identical with your body and mind, or completely separate from it. If it doesn't exist in those way either of those ways, then it can't exist at all. As Geshi tectark says, there's no third possibility. If the I doesn't exist in either of these ways, it can't it cannot inherently exist. So we'll get into this a little more because I'm always saying why, why, why? <laughs> so but anyway, when we we have to in the second point, we have to come to this conclusion. That so that, and we carry then up, we then carry out the analysis in the third and fourth points. We have to determine that if the, if the self inherently exists, it's got to exist in one of these two ways. So, in that sense, it's like looking in for my eyeglasses in the cabin. First, we're going to check one room, and if we don't find it there, then we go into the other room and look there. And if it's not in either of those rooms, my eyeglasses aren't in the cabin. And this is so, but to understand this. For, for me to understand this, I have to know more what are they talking about when they say one and different. So when we speak of the self as being one with the aggregates, we're not saying they're just similar. We're not saying, yeah, they're just kind of like, yeah, similar. They actually have to be completely identical in every respect. If they were different in any way, shape, or form, they wouldn't be one and so then the question becomes in this search is like, are the self and the aggregates completely identical or are they totally separate and unrelated? But still, I'm like, why? Why is that the case? And it's because only, only when you have inherent existence, only in that context, are two things either inherently one or inherently different. If things are inherently existent, they don't depend on any other factors. They, they can exist in isolation from everything. So in the context of inherent existence, two things have to be either inherently one or the same or completely separate and distinct. So Venerable Chodron explains this this way. Inherently one means they're totally interwoven. The designated object and the basis of designation are identical. So, so yet actually, as we know, we posit a person based independence upon the basis of designation, which are the aggregates, right? So the self, we, the, the person is is, is posited in dependence on the basis of designation. That's how we say it works. But if it was inherently one, those two things would have to be identical. So then the rules are different when it comes to inherent existence versus conventional existence. And why are there just these two options for inherent existence? It's because in inherent existence... It doesn't, there's, it doesn't depend on anything. Things are like, there's not, it doesn't depend on parts. It doesn't depend on causes. It doesn't depend on our mind. Something is independent, completely independent. So then, if it existed that way, it would have to, if the self and the aggregates, if the basis of a designation and the designating object, they'd have to be completely identical or completely different. There's no wiggle room in inherent existence, is how she says it. Whereas with conventional existence, because there is all kinds of wiggle room. And why? It's because things exist only by designation. So then, as Kappa says, all phenomena are described as posited by conceptuality, like a snake on a speckled rope. Remember, we've gone through that. We think there's a snake there, And actually there's a rope. We designate that in our mind. We impute that. And it's the same way we... The same process happens when we see the rope. We're also imputing the rope there based on our mind. Things only exist by designation. Okay, that's as much as I'm going to say about that because that's tough. But I did my best. Now I go on to point three. So then we have to examine this appearance of the self and we have to figure out is it one and identical with the, with the aggregates with the body of mind so if we will find out that if it was identical if the self was identical with the aggregates there would be endless contradictions and as our Gomchenchek says Text says if you agree with this then and then they list out all these contradictions that would happen and so here's some of them So I thought these were kind of fun. If the self was identical with the aggregates, one contradiction would be that the self would have to be identical with each and every one of the aggregates, right? So then we have a form aggregate that we can see with our eyes, but we have a mental consciousness that's invisible and you can't see. So then there would be two selves. One would be visible and one would be invisible. That's pretty funny. That would would have to be. Or another one is like the nature of the aggregates of form and the nature of the aggregates of the consciousness, if they're completely different, then we'd have two selves with two completely different natures because their natures are different. That doesn't work. Or if the self was identical with the aggregates, another contradiction would arise because all the different parts of our body would have to be different. They'd all have to be different selves. Each part would be a self because it's identical. And a fourth one would be because there are many different aspects of our consciousness, all our various mental factors that we have and all these different attitudes, then there'd have to be that many different selves. (laughs) That'd be pretty funny too. We'd have more than a split personality, (laughs) multiple personality. We'd have like infinite personality, infinite selves. Yeah, 84,000, yeah. So, let's see. And then when you think about all these different aspects of the mind, some of them are wholesome and some of them are unwholesome. They differ, right? And they actually contradict each other. So then we'd have some selves that we need to develop and others that we need to extinguish. <laughs> I might have to send that one to Guy Newland. I think he'd like that. <laughs> That's right up his alley. Okay, so that, those are obvious things. Those, none of those things work. Okay, so now we go back to the... Idea of my little retreat cabin with its two rooms. So let's say that in fact that my eyeglasses aren't in the cabin, but I'm not aware of this yet. So I have to first go check and see. So this is the same way when we do this analysis. We have to actually mentally dissect the body into its smallest parts and the mind into its most subtle aspects, and not do this in a haphazard way. And we do this until we're completely clean, clear that the self can't be identical with any of those things. You know, you've got that sense of self there, and you've got me here, and I'm taking my parts off and setting them over here, my pile of skin. I go, actually, sometimes I do the systems approach. Sometimes I do the, you know, because I had a lot of anatomy. We have You have two approaches in anatomy. You can go through the systems approach, the respiratory system, the circulatory system, the lymphatic system. I do it by system. Sometimes I do it by the other approach, which is like from the outside to the inside, a regional approach, they call it. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's what I do in the gross approach, the arms, the feet, and the legs. There's a lot of ways you can do this, but you keep having that sense of self, and pretty soon you just have this pile of mush over here, and, you know, there's just like the self is not identical with any of that pile of rubble, right? So you have to do this in a, I hope, that I'm not sure if that's exactly haphazardly or not, but that's how I do it. Anyway, so then we go to the fourth point of analysis, where you're trying now to figure out, we've looked in one room, now you go, go in the other room. I didn't find the eyeglasses in the first room, now I go in the second room. So if the self exists, maybe it's completely separate from the aggregates. As J- Guy said once, "You could send yourself as an email to somebody, because <laughs> the self has nothing to do with the body in my name, or it's separate. You could put it in an email and send it to somebody. I thought that was pretty good. Okay, so Okay, so if the self existed inherently, it would be inherently separate from the aggregates. So then w- there would be no connection, right? Because it doesn't depend on any other factors. There's no connection. So if it existed in that way, we should be able to find it. So then that means that you could have your aggregates here, and you could set aside all the aggregates, and you should still find the self existing somewhere. Separately from all of that. Like if if we have our cats in the little cat kitty condo, we have Maitri, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeka in the kitty condo, right? And we take out Maitri, Karuna, and Mudita. And who's left? Upeka, right? We'll still be there. Same thing. You take away all your aggregates, all five, one, two, three, four, five. And after you subtracted those, What should be left should be the self. And you should be able to, if it it existed inherently, you should be able to find it. It should be right there. You should be able to, there it is. So in this now, before the self appeared to us linked with the imputing consciousness, but it seemed like it was more powerful, right? As I guess you wrapped and described it, like it's setting itself up under its own power, you might say. But now we've done this analysis and we see, wow, nothing that we can positively identify is there. It seemed to exist really clearly before, right? The point one. That's why this is so hard, because we can't get the first point very well. But when you identify the appearance of the self, the object to be negated, when you have it really clear, it seems like it's, it exists. And then you do this dissection, and boom, you can't find it. And what do you find then? It's just an absence. It's a negation. So in our former view, we thought the self was, re- was truly existent. And this was based on our ignorance. But now we've done our analysis and we understand there's no ultimately existent self separate from the aggregates. So we've explored in all of these ways. And so what we're left with is just this simple absence. And then that is the ultimate nature of the self. This absence that we find isn't just a vacuity. It's not like nothingness. It's a negation. The previ- of the previous way that we thought the self, that we grasped at the self. So it's kind of really, I think it's good to really use the examples that they give. It's really truly like if you were looking for those eyeglasses in the cabin and you weren't able to find them in there, what would your experience be? It would be this absence of the eyeglasses. Like when you look for a thumb drive that you set down someplace, and you look all the places you thought it was, what are you left with? absence of thumb drive in all the places you look. We have to get used to what an absence feels like. So, as Venerable says, that when we discover that the I isn't inherently one or inherently separate from the aggregates, we're not really, that alone isn't a realization of emptiness. We have to realize because it isn't, therefore it's empty of inherent existence. It's this absence. And this we can only do by doing meditation step by step and then eventually leading to a full realization. We won't do this by reading a book. So this this sense of an absence can't just be an intellectual experience. We have to absorb our, even if we have an experience on the cushion, and even if it doesn't feel so intellectual, Mm -hmm. it feels a bit like an experience, we have to absorb our mind into it. It's kinda of like when we do our room meditations and we teach people to like once you generate the feeling, then stop the analysis and and hold your mind there. And sometimes we tend to fly through, as Jeffrey has said many times, you know, you're just like addicted to translating another word or going on to the next paragraph. We have to people like like me, anyway, have to stop, you know when to pause and just stay. Stay with the experience that you're having. And I find for myself that's easier the calmer my mind is, because the mind naturally wants to stay there then. So I think for myself, personally speaking, the thing with concentration is about, is about joy, actually. Being able to gladden the mind so that your mind naturally wants to stay on an object. You know, there's, this is in the teachings. And so I think it might be similar here. We have to learn how to fully absorb our mind and then when we do this analysis, pause and do that. So we when we've clearly then realized this absence, then we absorb ourselves into it and experience emptiness in this proper way. If our mind doesn't become absorbed but it remains separate, like you're seeing emptiness as an object, that would be mistaken. I think his holiness said that if you had the realization, even intellectually, even an inferential realization. You could turn your attention to something else, like your tongue, and realize the emptiness of that. Like, and then you could confirm to yourself that you've actually realized the uh, realized your first. You don't. You know, like you're trying to check up at that point. Have I really done this? And if your mind still has under the influence of the the force of your previous analysis, then you would just turn it to something like your tongue. See, And if you saw the influence of that, then you're helping to confirm that you actually, your first experience was what you thought it was. Does anyone have any, um, I'm not really taking questions, <laughs> but comments, <laughs> comments are very loud. It's one of those nights. I'd just like to know uh, what text of geshe Raptins you were quoting. This is a text out. that's like 30 years old, 40 maybe. It came out in 85, I think it's called Treasury of Dharma, Treasury of Dharma, it's I think 85, whatever that is, 95, yeah, he's, he's actually, you know, it's clear that he's done a lot of meditation and can, is a scholar and understands the philosophy, and that's what I need a lot of times for these things to make more sense. What I notice is that he always brings up an example. He'd say a point, easy example, point, easy example. He never didn't do that. And then there were uh, the teachings from venerable children. And then I used also, um, you know, the book Insight into Emptiness is, you know, like I have to confirm all my terms, you know, and make sure I'm understanding things. I'm always looking up things in there. And Meditation on Emptiness I looked at a little bit. No, I used... um, yeah, I looked in appearance and reality and then maybe it was from there, the one about the clouds, I can't remember where I found that, one of his books. But also some of the things he told me I just remember, his stories. He has really good examples like the colorblind person and stuff like that. He has, he's an excellent teacher. he He makes, he knows how to make points really clearly. And, he, and as Jeffrey says, he has impeccable understanding of the topic, this topic. Anything else? Okay. We can dedicate. And uh, it would be good for us to think about um, there's a lot of people we know recently who have died or had surgeries. And there's a lot of things going on in the world. So let's take the merit of these the great opportunity that we have to have teachers in the time period that we do and the efforts that they've made to write books and to give teachings. And, um, yeah, it's just incredible. And let's take that merit and share it with all, like, ripples and try to help the world in any way possible.